As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello there and welcome or welcome back. I'm Nurse Mo and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast where I teach concepts and share tips on how to thrive in nursing school and at the bedside. So today's topic is for you nursing students who are heading into your ICU clinical rotations. And if you're like me, you were excited, but also a little bit terrified. So we're going to talk about it so that you can go into your clinical rotation with a lot less fear and a lot more joy. Now, before we do that, let's take a quick minute for our listener shout out. And this one goes out to Christine, who has some things to say about my private podcast study sesh. Here's what she says. Study Sesh is seriously amazing. I just started nursing school and there are several topics already that directly pertain to what I am going to be learning and fundamentals coming up soon. I can't recommend Study Sesh enough. So thank you, Christine, for taking time to share your experience with Study Sesh. And as a brand new student, I just want to wish you all the luck in the world as you start and thrive in your nursing school program. Okay, let's dive into talking about ICU clinicals. So this type of clinical rotation can definitely be intimidating, especially if you're like me and you hadn't really ever been in a critical care environment before. So hopefully after you listen to this episode, you approach your clinical rotation in the ICU with excitement and joy and anticipation instead of being completely terrified like maybe I was, okay? Yeah, maybe a little bit. All right, so let's first talk about how ICU is different from med surge. So by the time you start doing your ICU clinical rotations, you've already done some clinical rotations on med surge or as we say on the floor. So here's a few things about how it's different. So first of all, the patients in the ICU are sicker. They require advanced interventions and more frequent and in a lot of cases, even continuous monitoring. So some common examples would be a patient who's on a ventilator, a patient who requires really powerful medications to keep their blood pressure up. How about a patient who has received thrombolytic therapy or TPA because they had an ischemic stroke and now they require frequent neuro assessments and very close monitoring? You could have a patient who has diabetic ketoacidosis who requires hourly blood glucose measurements and an insulin infusion. You might have a patient recovering from a really big surgery like open heart surgery or a patient who's in septic shock. I took care of a lot of patients in the ICU with active GI bleeds who were requiring very careful monitoring and receiving frequent blood transfusions. 
And then another example might be a patient with an EVD, an extraventricular drain, who requires careful neuromonitoring, careful monitoring of their intracranial pressure and fluid replacements. So all of these patients would require ICU level care. In general, patients in the ICU have their heart rhythm, their heart rate, their respiratory rate, and their SpO2 monitored continuously. And then blood pressure is monitored as often as every five minutes. Now, some patients will have advanced hemodynamic monitoring in place. So in those patients, we can actually watch things like blood pressure and cardiac output continuously in real time as well. Another key difference between ICU and med surge is the nurse to patient ratio. While California is currently the only state to mandate ratios, hello, California, I'm so glad I live here. Thank you for doing that. Most ICUs are a one-to-one or one-to-two ratio, meaning one nurse to one patient or one nurse to two patients. Though with staffing shortages, especially in other areas, I have seen one to three ratios occurring, though even though this could occur does not mean it is safe, does not mean it is best practice. In contrast to the ICU, med surge ratios are more like one to five, or in some cases, one to seven. So very, very different in that regard. So what might your first impressions of the ICU be like? So when you first walk into a critical care environment, probably one of the first things you'll notice is the amount and variety of high-tech equipment. Each patient will have their own monitor displaying their heart rate, respiratory rate, SpO2, blood pressure, those would be the minimum type of measurements. Other displays may show things like intracranial pressure, central venous pressure or CVP, or pulmonary artery wedge pressure. In addition to the monitoring equipment, you'll see ventilators, bedside dialysis machines, feeding tube pumps, a lot of IV pumps, And in some units, you may even see ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And that is a highly specialized type of therapy. And I will put a link in the episode notes to an episode I did all about ECMO. Another thing you'll likely notice is that most patients typically in the ICU have their own room. So instead of the floor where you might have two patients to a room, even three or four patients to a room, ICU patients typically have their own room, and that's simply because there's just so much equipment and the patients can be very busy with a lot going on. It makes sense that each patient have their own space. Now, instead of a traditional door like you had on your med surge floors where you would close a wooden door and you can't see your patient from the hallway, in the ICU, we need to be able to keep a close eye on our patients. So instead of a door, what you usually have is a glass wall, which it basically the whole wall is like the door and it opens. And then you can get beds in and out easily. And you can see the patient from the hallway or even from the nurse's station if it's right there. Remember, intensive care also means intensive monitoring. Now, the next thing you might notice is how much noise there is. All this high-tech monitoring equipment and therapeutic equipment has alarms. And these alarms occur on a regular 
and it can almost feel like continuous basis. There are alarms for heart rate, alarms for heart rhythm, alarms for respiratory rate, SpO2, and blood pressure. There are high pressure alarms on the ventilator and low pressure alarms on the ventilator, BiPAP alarms, IV pump alarms, feeding tube alarms, and so much more. It's a pretty stimulating environment and an ICU nurse must be able to differentiate what's happening with the patient based off a wide variety of sounds because that's a key way that you are getting data thrown at you about your patient. So let's talk about some ICU safety tips for students. So the ICU is a fantastic opportunity to get in there, get your hands on patients and a ton of different types of equipment. You'll likely get a lot of practice with hands-on skills, depending on what your school allows and what your preceptor is comfortable with, of course. But don't discount the really golden opportunity in the ICU, which is the opportunity to practice assessing patients with significantly altered physiology. This is where you'll hear lung sounds so coarse that it sounds like a washing machine. This is where you'll feel subcutaneous emphysema, where you'll get a ton of practice utilizing a Doppler so that you can use the Doppler to assess pulses. You'll get great at grading edema, get exposure to recognizing signs of shock. You'll understand what a Glasgow coma score of three actually looks like and get a feel for recognizing patients in respiratory distress. You'll also get opportunities to get your hands on a lot of different equipment, feeding tubes, IV pumps, indwelling catheters, tracheostomy tubes, ventilators, pupillometers, hemovacs, chest tubes, central lines, extraventricular drains, pacemakers, hemodynamic monitoring devices, arterial lines, LVADs, and a lot, lot more. Now, again, you always want to follow your school policy, your clinical instructor guidelines, and your preceptor guidelines for what you actually are able to work with and never, ever, ever do anything without your preceptor present. Equipment can and will malfunction, and there are times when this could be a critical situation, such as with something like an EVD or a pacemaker or tracheostomy tube or a ventilator or an arterial line or a chest tube, any kind of equipment like that can malfunction, which is why you always want to manipulate and work with it always with your preceptor's direct supervision. So in addition to only handling equipment with your preceptor supervision, here are a few more ICU safety tips for nursing students. So one is make sure that your patient's blood pressure cuffs are the appropriate size and positioned correctly so you can be assured of the most reliable readings. I cannot tell you how many times I have taken over care of a patient and their blood pressure is reading usually reading pretty low, and I'm not expecting it to read that low. And I go and check, and they have the wrong size blood pressure cuff in place. Now, if I hadn't checked that, this patient could have received unnecessary treatment. Or let's say the patient's blood pressure is reading really high, and you don't expect it to be reading really high. Maybe they have no history of hypertension. They don't have pain issues. They don't have anxiety. They don't have a noticeable reason for that hypertension. So if you don't check to make sure that they're wearing the appropriate size and that it's positioned properly, the patient could receive 
inappropriate treatment. So that's a basic good safety tip and just a really solid foundation practice for when you're assessing your patient's blood pressure. You also want to take all alarms seriously until proven to be non-serious. Get in the room, put eyes on the patient. If anything is unexpected, call for help and get your preceptor in their stat. Never, ever, ever turn off an alarm without your preceptor's direct supervision. And if an IV pump is alarming, never just turn it off. I've been at the bedside and and maybe my hands are busy. I'm doing something you know, elsewhere with a patient and I can't get over to it right away. And I've seen somebody, I'm not going to say who, but it was not a nurse. It was a different medical team member. Just reach over and turn the pump off. And if that pump is running something critical, that's a serious safety situation. So take all alarms seriously. Get in there, put eyeballs on the patient. Don't silence alarms until you're sure that your preceptor is aware of the alarm and they know that the alarm is being silenced and never turn off an alarming IV pump. You need to get in there, troubleshoot, and with your preceptor, determine what's going on with the pump so that it can get back to delivering the fluid or the medication as needed. The other thing that I would say for a good safety tip is know where the code blue button is in all of your patient rooms. It could be in a different place in different rooms. And never, ever, 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 ever reposition a patient on a ventilator or who has a lot of lines and tubes yourself. This requires a team in order to do it safely so that we don't accidentally dislodge an endotracheal tube or a tracheostomy tube or pull out a line carrying a really important medication. I had a student once and I was in, we had two patients that day and I was in one patient's room and he was in the other patient's room and I hear the vent alarm, the high pressure vent alarm going off. And I rush in there and not only was he in the room by himself, but he had the curtain pulled so nobody could see from the doorway what was going on. I went right in there and he had been trying to reposition the patient by himself who was on a ventilator and the patient's coughing and not tolerating this very well. So the vent was alarming high pressures. And so that was a teachable moment. Um, here's how you reposition a patient on a ventilator. If they start coughing and they're not tolerating it, you need to put the head of the bed back up until they can catch their breath because a lot of times patients on ventilators are rather awake. So that could have been a serious safety issue. Luckily, I was close by and heard it. And it was, again, a very teachable moment. So don't be repositioning patients, even though you want to be really helpful if they've got tubing, a ventilator, lots of lines and things, make sure that you have your preceptor in there because it does take usually even more than one person to do this safely. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. Another really great safety tip is to 
always before you step away from the bedside, let's say you're right up there doing things with the patient before you back away or step away, take a quick minute, look down, look around you, make sure that no tubes, no lines are entangled around your body, around your stethoscope, around anything that could get pulled as you step away. The last thing you want to do is pull back and accidentally pull out their feeding tube or pull out a central line. Now, if your patient is restrained to prevent pulling out their tubes and their lines, make it a habit to always assess the restraints to make sure they're applied correctly before stepping away from the bedside. I once precepted a new nurse who failed to do this kind of on a regular basis. And the situation was the patient had pulled out their NG tube because their restraints were not appropriately applied. And so she had to replace the NG tube. And I thought, great, this is a perfect teachable moment. Because if you don't ensure your restraints are appropriately applied, your patient can pull out their line. So here you go. Replace the NG tube. She replaced the NG tube. Wasn't watching the patient very, very carefully. As soon as that NG tube got into place, guess what happened? Patient reached right up, pulled it right out. And I don't blame him. If you put something up my nose, I guarantee you I would either pull it out or punch you. And I I wouldn't want to do either one of those things, but it would just happen. It would be reflexive. So she had to put it in again. And that was another teachable moment. You have to be hyper vigilant that your patients are, especially the ones who are reaching for lines and tubes. And this happens a lot because they're confused. They're simply confused because of their pathophysiology, maybe medications that they've received, et cetera. It happens all the time. Always check for appropriately appropriately applied restraints before you step away. Now, you always want to notify the nurse that you're working with if you notice anything unexpected in your patient. I once had a student who recognized a loss of pedal pulses in a patient, and the patient got prompt treatment because this nursing student was so on top of her assessments. I was so, so proud of her. Another really great safety tip is to triple check all of your medications and check them a fourth time, I would say, with your preceptor. And if you are hanging IV piggyback medications, if that's part of what you're allowed to do in your clinicals, then you are only doing that with your preceptor supervision. Same with IV fluids. You're not likely to be doing IV push medications as a student, but if you are, you are only doing that with your preceptor's supervision. And then another word about alarms, ventilator alarms, specifically never, never, ever silence a ventilator alarm. Let your preceptor know, especially if it's that high pressure alarm or that low pressure alarm. A low pressure alarm means something has gotten disconnected somewhere. And that's not good. And a high pressure alarm is often due to an occlusion and the ET tube may need to be suctioned. Both of these situations require prompt assessment and intervention. And then lastly, never do anything that you're not checked off to do or that is not covered under your school policy. And always, always check with your preceptor about anything you are unsure of. So now let's talk very briefly through three common scenarios that you'll see in critical care so that when they happen, you don't feel like you're seeing them for the very first time. So 
So one of those is your patient has an unexpected drop in blood pressure. So when your patient becomes hypotensive, the nurse that you're working with will likely do the following. So First thing they may do is verify that measurement by assessing the blood pressure cuff, making sure it's the right size and that it is placed appropriately. And they may also move the cuff to the other arm. If the patient has an arterial line, the nurse will check that the arterial line is at the appropriate level and that the waveform is as it should be. Basically, when we get a reading we're not expecting, we need to verify that reading. And then the nurse will notify the MD using SBAR, so making a phone call or approaching them in person. A lot of times in the ICU, the physicians are often close by. So you may not have to call. You may just need to walk down to the end of the unit where they're charting, right? And you find them and then you can give your SBAR in person. So they'll likely receive some orders. These orders can include crystalloids, it can include colloids, and it can include vasopressors such as norepinephrine. If IV fluids are ordered, these will be administered as a bolus, meaning they must be infused quickly and it is not enough to put the IV tubing on the pump at 999 mils per hour. That is not a bolus. Let's say the physician ordered a liter bolus and the nurse put it on the pump to deliver at 999 mils per hour, which is as fast as the pump can deliver. And I've seen this happen a million times, nurses thinking that that's a bolus. That would take an hour for that IV fluid bag to infuse. When a physician orders a bolus, they want that fluid infused in 5, 10, maybe 15 minutes. They want it administered quickly. So the nurse may use a rapid infuser if they have that at the facility where you're at. They may use a pressure bag or they may manually squeeze the fluids in using a special IV tubing that has a bulb. And that'd be a great job for a student, right? They set it up and they say, okay, squeeze these fluids in. That could be something you could be doing. Now, if vasopressors are ordered, the nurse will want to get this powerful medication initiated very quickly. The patient may need additional IV access for that, which could involve the nurse starting another line or advocating for a central line if the patient doesn't already have one. And then patients who receive vasoactive medications like norepinephrine will require more frequent monitoring of their heart rate and their blood pressure. And those blood pressure measurements are going to be taken very frequently until that blood pressure goal is reached. Because with a medication like norepinephrine, we start it at the starting dose and then assess the blood pressure and then increase the dose as needed at regular intervals until we reach our goal. That is called titrating the medication. So once we get to the goal, then blood pressure is monitored typically every 15 minutes thereafter. So that would be a common scenario if your patient is hypotensive. Now, what if your patient goes into respiratory failure and requires emergent intubation? What happens then? So one of the first things that happens is someone's going to grab the intubation tray this could be a dedicated tray that is with the respiratory equipment, or it may just be a tray from the crash cart. And then someone needs to remove the headboard from the head of the bed so that the MD can get at the head of the bed into position to intubate the patient. They can't do that with the headboard in the way. 
The MD is going to order specific medications for what is called a rapid sequence intubation, or you may hear this called RSI or the RSI meds. Common medications include rocuronium, succinylcholine, Atomidate and propofol. Though you as a student who's precepting in the ICU will not be pushing these medications, be aware that succinylcholine causes potassium levels to rise temporarily, so it's avoided in patients with hyperkalemia. It can also trigger malignant hyperthermia in susceptible patients. Okay, so the RSI medications are pushed by the RN or the MD, and this depends on facility policy and scope of practice if the nurse can push these medications. And the MD intubates the patient with assistance from a respiratory therapist. The RN is monitoring the patient throughout this whole procedure, looking for things like dropping oxygen saturation levels, tachycardia and hypotension, and then, of course, communicates these concerns to the physician. Note that hypotension is a pretty common occurrence in intubation, and this occurs for a few different reasons. One is the switch to positive pressure ventilation decreases venous return. It decreases preload and therefore it decreases cardiac output. Also, circulating catecholamines that normally would help maintain vascular tone and cardiac output are made less effective in an acidic environment. So if the patient's in respiratory acidosis, they could be hypotensive because of that. And then, of course, the effects of RSI medications, especially propofol. It really does cause a pretty good drop in blood pressure. So if you look at all of these things in total, the patient's pretty at risk for hypotension at this time. So the physician may order a fluid bolus or some vasopressors to address hypotension and a nurse will be responsible for administering these medications. And then the endotracheal tube placement is initially confirmed by the MD by listening for bilateral breath sounds and with end tidal CO2. Some facilities also utilize a colorimetric CO2 detector, which turns color from purple to gold when exhaled carbon dioxide is detected. The MD will then order a chest X-ray to confirm placement as this is the gold standard for endotracheal tube placement confirmation. And they'll also order any medications that are needed for hemodynamic support if that's necessary and for sedation. Now, prior to the x-ray technician arriving at the bedside a lot of times, the nurse will insert an OG tube for parenteral nutrition and medication administration because, of course, now that the patient is intubated, they're no longer going to be taking their nutrition and their medications by mouth. They're going to need an OG tube. And we use the oral route instead of the nasal route for those tubes because it could be in there for an extended period of time, four or five days, maybe a week, and an NG tube would cause a breakdown at the nares. So we do OG tubes instead. And that OG tube placement can be confirmed at the same time as the endotracheal tube with that same x-ray. And throughout all of this, the ET tube is secured by the respiratory therapist, and they are starting to determine the best ventilator settings for the patient. So the physician may just order 
vent protocol, or they may order specific settings. So if they order a ventilator protocol, the RT will titrate the ventilator to the best settings in order to meet the patient's specific oxygenation goals. Now, another scenario that's unfortunately somewhat common in the critical care environment is a code blue. Now, as a student, the best role for you, honestly, is to perform high-quality chest compressions. You learned how to do that in your BLS class. You are 100% qualified to perform chest compressions. Now, if you're the one who witnesses the code, you also know exactly what to do. You're going to check for responsiveness, you're going to check for breathing and a pulse, and you're going to push the code button and start chest compressions. That's all you need to do as that person who is the first responder to a code. And it can be absolutely life-saving. So I don't want you to be terrified of this. Yes, it is a high adrenaline moment. It can be very scary, but you know what to do. Check for responsiveness, check for breathing, check for a pulse. Push the code button and start chest compressions. You 100% can do that. So I hope this brief overview of what it might be like to have a clinical rotation in the ICU helps alleviate any anxiety you might have so you can be super excited about this wonderful opportunity. And if you found this helpful, I hope that you can take the time to rate and review the podcast. It really helps us show up for other students when they go looking for this podcast or nurses who are looking for educational material that they can listen to on the go. And I very, very much appreciate it. So I will see you back here next week for another episode of the Straighty Nursing Podcast. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. you find it hard to sleep at night then the calm cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long calm cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires all of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast calm cove is brought to you by the team behind sleep cove the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.